it's my great pleasure to be able to continue on this series uh, with you this morning. Um, but I have to confess, I'm, I'm a bit nervous up here. Uh, so normally when I speak, I'll always be a little bit nervous. So, but anytime I communicate in the front row, a few songs, and during the last few songs, I'll have a little manic, minor like panic, anxiety attack every time. It's pretty normal. But today I feel especially nervous because what I had prepared, I felt like last night God spoke something different. Um, now, if you're not aware, if you've been living under a rock or just blatantly covering your ears as hard as you can, um, our country's been going through a massive election, right? And yesterday was the big vote day. And so this morning, we find ourselves in a bit of a limbo space. Hey, where the votes have come in, national has the most, but not enough to make a clear majority. And so it means now that <clears throat> all these other governments and coalitions, they're all going to be working together and chatting to one another to see who will be the future government of New Zealand. And it leaves us in this awkward in-between space. And I'm also acutely aware that even within this room, there are a wide variety of reactions to yesterday's event. There are some of you that are going to be very, very excited. You'll be like, oh, good, National's got a lot of votes. I feel really happy about that. There are others of you who will be in here being like, oh, National got a lot of votes. I'm really frustrated about that. And then there will be those of you who are like, it's done. Praise God. And um, so there's a little bit of everything in between. But as I was watching the election coverage yesterday, I just felt like God spoke to me through this passage I was going to look at and, and had us just change tack a little bit. Because it's easy, I think, for the church to just kind of go on as if nothing's happening around us. But part of my role as a, a preacher and a pastor is to help equip the church to think about these things theologically. Because the elections are massive and they affect our incomes, they affect our neighborhoods, they affect our communities. And so I'm very keen to make sure that we have some theological tools to help understand this in-between place we find ourselves. So it means that coming in today, it's a little bit rougher than I would normally have it. Uh, I don't have as many kind of cool long stories or great illustrations. I actually come to you with um, basically just the scripture and what I think God might be speaking to us through it. Hope, is that all right? Can't really say no, can you? I'm up here. So um, let's just pray. God, your word speaks, and you speak to us today, and you speak to us in the midst of the situation we find ourselves. Spirit of God, would you flow through this place? Breathe on our hearts and our minds and our ears so that we might hear what your spirit might be saying. Amen. Amen. So in this Who Me series, the person we're looking at today is a wonderful character. He's actually, fun fact, the only biblical character that has joined our movement. Uh, that's our good friend John the Baptist, which is quite nice. Did you like my dad joke? I'm working on my dad jokes, and I felt like that was one of them. Yeah. John is a Baptist. We're Baptists. Anglicans can't claim that, can they? Um, So what we have is this character of John the Baptist. And so if you want to take out your Bibles, um, we're going to be working through Luke 3, um, which is where you've got this one of the main key stories about John and his role within the nation. And what I think he can speak to us a lot today in the situation we find ourselves. So this is uh, Luke chapter 3. In verse 1, it opens up with saying, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Turconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, 
in the desert. Now, what's interesting, you'll notice at the very beginning of this passage, there is a long list of names, like a lot of people that they're talking about. And that's because in the passages just before this, the previous thing that Luke talked about was the story when Jesus was like 12 and got left behind by his parents because he was in the temple doing his parents' business, like doing, going about his father's business. You remember that story? So that story finishes, and then there's this 15-year gap between what happened and where Luke throws us in. And so Luke is really conscious and wants to make us really aware of the context in which we're reading. And the context is really interesting, I think, particularly for us today. It mentions Tiberius, who is in the 15th year of his reign. He's the, the Caesar, the ruler of Rome. And what's interesting about Tiberius is that early on into his rule, he lost one of his own children. And this caused a massive upheaval within him, and he ended up withdrawing more and more from leadership in the Roman Empire. And so as he's pulling back, what Luke is saying is we're now in the 15th year of his reign, which means he's pulled back quite a bit, and now you have these two aides, these two top advisors that were advising Tiberius, they're now vying for power. They're kind of one-upping each other to see who's going to be able to have the most influence in the Roman Empire. Luke then moves on to Pontius Pilate, who most of us will probably be familiar with from the crucifixion story. And what it's clear from Pontius Pilate's story is that Pontius was the leader of Judea, but he only held on by a little bit. I mean, when Jesus was brought before him and there was a riot, Pontius was more than willing to send Jesus off to the slaughterhouse in order to quelch a riot, even though Pontius knew that Jesus was innocent. So Pontius was ready to sacrifice innocent people in order to hold on to his own power. And then it mentions Herod and Philip and all these other leaders of these surrounding regions of Israel. And again, what we know from history is all these people, Herod and his brothers, were constantly fighting vying for power. Each one was trying to shift and out-politically maneuver the other one so that they could have the most influence in the region. And then Luke gets even closer and he talks about Annas and Caiaphas, who were the leaders of the temple, which is really the, the heartbeat of the Jewish nation. And what we also know is that these leaders of Israel, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Sadducees were more like the upper-class ruling elite who were in the temple, they were often doing backroom deals with Rome and the Roman Empire to make sure that they could maintain their own influence and leadership in the city to make sure the temple could keep going, while the Pharisees were more like the grassroots leaders. They had all their synagogues out in the regions, and they were working with the people, and they were trying to win the hearts of the people by gathering them around the law. And so what Luke does is in this small statement, he shows us that John the Baptist enters into a context where everybody is vying for power, where the political sands are shifting, And all these leaders are trying to one-up one another and find their place. Who's going to establish leadership? Who's going to be the one in charge? Who's going to be the one in belonging? And it's in that context, Luke says, that the Spirit of God came upon John, who was in the desert to speak and preach the Word of God. Now it's fascinating because here it's in the in-between times in the state of waiting for something to happen, even though something has happened previously, that the Spirit of God comes in and John begins to open up a whole different world. Later on in verse 4, they describe John's ministry like this. He's the voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. 
Every valley will be filled in. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth so that all of humanity can see God's salvation. And so it's in this in-between time when leaders are shifting and things are moving that the Spirit of God raises up someone to begin to proclaim a different sort of kingdom. See, John gets out in the wilderness and he begins to talk and talk about something so different from everyone else. Everyone else is pushing for leadership. Everyone else is pushing for power. And John says, guys, don't you understand? They're fighting in Rome. They're fighting here in Israel. They're fighting in Judea. They're fighting in the temple. Everybody's trying to get on top, but they're playing games because a king is coming. A great king is coming and all the paths will be made straight for him. He's going to lower the mountains. He's going to fill up the valleys and everything is going to come together so that the whole world can see his salvation. John begins to advocate for a different sort of kingdom, a different sort of leader. And it's the Spirit of God working through him that begins to communicate about the kingdom of God in the midst of this in-between times. The verses go on. He looked real different. In Matthew, they describe him as being out in the desert. Now remember, everything was located in Jerusalem, right? That's where the temple was. That's where Pilate was. That's where Herod was. That's where all the leadership was. That's where the the beating heart of Israeli society was all in Jerusalem, in the temples, in the synagogues. And then you've got this guy who's out in the desert, in the wilderness. Matthew describes him as wearing camel skin with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. And then the food that they describe John eating is locusts and honey. Now, I'm not sure how locusts fit on the purity scale. Now, hopefully most of you will be familiar that Israel had real strict things that they could and couldn't eat. Pork's not okay, but sheep was okay. You know, like they had real strict laws. I'm not sure that bugs were technically unclean, but they sure couldn't have been high up on the pecking order of greatness, right? And he's this wild, crazy dude with unkempt hair, wearing animal skin with a belt, eating bugs out in the desert, and he is so different to every other leader. Can you imagine... Tiberius leading that way? Can you imagine the leaders of the synagogues wearing camel skin, eating bugs, talking about God's kingdom? No. It was weird. Really weird. And it was this weirdness that drew people to him. They said people came from all the cities. They flooded the countrysides to see this crazed prophet in the desert. His difference allowed him to have a fresh voice in the context. I wonder how much that speaks to you and to me. Now, for my generation, uh, for most of us as young people, when you talk about faith or Christianity or living your faith out, one of the common words that will always come up is relevance. We want to be relevant. We really want to be relevant. One of our favorite websites in the States is called Relevant Magazine. Like, it's cool and hip and trendy, and we want to be like relating to the culture. So we end up dressing like the culture and listening to the same music as everybody else and talking the same as everybody else and watching the same movies as everybody else and making the same decisions and career choices as everybody else and loving everybody else the same way and trying to do the same things as everybody else. And then we quietly pray, Jesus, make me a light on a hill. Do you see the irony there? 
You see, John was so different, so different. He didn't look like any leader they'd had in a long time. He didn't follow the standard rules of leadership. These weren't the 12 laws of influence that you had to follow in order to be a great leader. He lived in the desert, ate bugs and wore camel skin, and preached the word of God, and his difference drew people to him. See, I think in the midst of our political turmoil, in the midst of all these parties are vying for power and deciding who they're going to be, we as the church are called to be different. Not to look like everybody else, not to act like everybody else, not to make the same decisions as everybody else, because we belong to a different kingdom whose rule and law is different, where the least are the greatest, the first are last, the last are made great, the poor are brought food, the humble are made prideful, the prideful are made low. Everything about our kingdom is different. And if we hold on to that and we begin to dig into our difference rather than trying to become like everyone else, we can begin to have a fresh voice into our world. See, John wore camel skin and a leather belt. We can wear the righteousness that comes from God. A righteousness that isn't afraid of getting tainted by the dirtiness of the world, but a righteousness that gets in, gets our hands into the mix of it, the, the thick of the dirt and grime, because we know that our righteousness isn't tainted, but the righteousness that comes from God is transformative. Our presence in the hurting and broken world brings life, not tainting us. John ate bugs and honey. Our food could be to do the will of God. We are fed not by getting more and more and more, but by giving more and more and more. Where everyone else worships at the idols of individualism, autonomy, of wealth and power, we worship at the idol of Jesus who lives on a cross and self-sacrificially gives himself for everyone else. Can you get a taste of when we begin to grab a hold of this difference, we begin to become an aroma, a scent, a, a foretaste of this great king that is coming. So let's stop trying to be like everybody else in this season. Let's be the crazy guy in the desert wearing a camel skin cloak, eating bugs, proclaiming a great and wonderful king. And everybody will come to check out what's going on, even if they're just concerned because we're weird. The next thing John does, when all these people come out to him, right? So all these people come from the countryside and they begin to listen to his message. What's the thing that he says to them? And what's fascinating is who he directs his first statement to. In Matthew particularly, but in Luke as well, he directs his first statement to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the, the leaders of the church, the people of God. And these are his words to the people of God who've come out to the desert to hear the crazy man preach. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Listen, the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh, that's a harsh word. The first thing that he does when he speaks to his own people, the chosen people of God, the first words out of his lips are a call to repentance. Repentance. Repent. Turn back to God. 
you've fallen in love with Rome. You've fallen in love with the ways of leadership and power that everybody else loves, but God is different. Repent, come and turn back to him. Be baptized and return to God. A call to repentance to the church. I think in the midst of every election season, this is an important lesson we all need to remember. Because it's real easy to start pointing fingers, eh? Oh, National's not doing enough of this. Oh, Labor's going to push in that. Oh, the Greens are going to try and bring this in. Up, oh, ACT is going to try and make that happen. New Zealand First is all about this. And you notice how our fingers begin going like this, like this, like this, like this, like this, like this, like this. As if going like this will change our scenario. But hasn't the message of God and the gospel always been, it starts here with us, in our hearts? We can't get mad at the government of not taking care of the poor when we have poor amongst us that we don't look after. We can't get mad at the government for not taking care of the environment when we don't take care of the environment that is given to us. We can't get mad at the government for doing these things if we ourselves are still doing it. God always calls his church, his people first to repent. And we have the opportunity with every election season, when everybody's jostling for power, when everyone's trying to justify their own strengths and minimize their own weaknesses, the church can say, hey, guys, you know what? We got it wrong. We're sorry. We have a great and lovely king, and we fall short of it so much. May God forgive us, and may you forgive us. What a refreshing voice, hey, from everyone who will try and hide their mistakes, we open ours up and say, God, have mercy on us. A church that is repentant and coming back to God has the chance to breathe fresh wind into our societies, but it starts with us. The change we want to vote in at the Beehive needs to start in your and my heart with God working in us. So, he lays down the hammer smacks the church upside the face, and the crowd keeps coming back for more and says, well, then what do I do? What, what do we do? How do we repent? How do we, how do we move forward? In verse 10, the crowd asked that. What then should we do? John, 11, verse, John answered in verse 11. The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Now, tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, well, what should we do? And he replied, don't collect any more than you're required to. And then soldiers came and asked him, well, teacher, what, what do we do? He replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Oh, that must have taken guts, eh? Oh, it must have taken so much guts. Like, how do you look at this crowd that's come to hear you speak? They want to hear about how to get everything better, how to benefit themselves, how they can make the future that they always dreamed of better. And he says, well, if you got a lot of stuff, give half of it to somebody who has nothing. That's start. People reel back. The tax collectors come up, and we know that tax collectors, the way that they made their income is they took more than was required of them. That was how they got their cut. That's how they made their living. And they asked, teacher, what do we do? And he says, don't take any more than you're required to. Don't, don't, 
don't lose your integrity. And then the soldiers who are literally the muscle of the empire, the very worst embodiment of everything terrible that a lot of Jews would think about, the soldiers come forward and say, well, what do we do? How do do we respond? John says, stop taking money from people. Stop accepting bribes. Stop terrifying the people and abusing your power for your own benefit. See, John's message was this clear challenge to a different way of living. John spoke truth to power fearlessly. And this got him in trouble. In fact, John continued on this pattern over and over again of speaking truth to power, regardless of who it was and regardless of what the consequences was. There was right, there was wrong, and if it was wrong, he was going to raise his voice and say, no, there is another king coming who won't accept that. We need to live according to a different kingdom. And that got him in the slammer. See, Herod, one of the rulers we mentioned, ended up taking and marrying his brother Philip's wife. And this caused all, caught all sorts of tension. The regions got up in arms with one another. It nearly caused a civil war, as well as just the difficulty of marrying your brother's wife, which is weird. And he raises up his voice and says, Herod, this is wrong. You are a leader God ordained for this place. Your actions don't reflect his kingdom. Herod, repent. And that doesn't tend to go off so well when you say that to the guy in charge, eh? And so they take John and they lock him up in jail. And he sticks in jail for ages until one day Herodias, the wife, her daughter dances before Herod. And she does such a magnificent, wonderful dance that Herod is amazed and he says to this girl, girl, you are a wonderful dancer. Ask of me anything in my power and I will give it to you. So the girl goes back and chats with her mother. She goes back to Herod and says, Oh, great king, I ask that you would bring me the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And so Herod reluctantly agrees. See, John's willingness to speak truth to power literally got him killed. It is a challenging and difficult call but is a call that echoes out to us today. Regardless of how you feel, whichever party gets in, whoever our next prime minister is, our role doesn't actually change. We as the church, our role in this democracy never changes. We are always called to speak truth to power fearlessly, to advocate for those who have little fearlessly, to call forward a better kingdom that God is bringing fearlessly. See, we are always called to be the opposition party, to be calling the government to account for what God is doing, because God's way is so much greater. And like so many of the saints before us, we can't just sit back and let the government do whatever it wants. John the Baptist sure didn't, nor did any of the early church leaders. Why do you think so many of them were martyred? Because they raised up their voices and said, what you are doing is not okay. There is a better kingdom, a better way to treat people according to our good and gracious God. And so they spoke up fearlessly. That call still resides within us. And so whoever gets in power now, and whatever goes forward, you and me are still called to participate in this ongoing journey of speaking truth into that. That is our role as the church. And it will cost us something. 
It's not an easy thing to keep speaking up to people who don't like to hear the things we have to say. But that cost is worth it. To be the people that God has called us to be. Finally, John did one last thing. He was this crazy guy in the desert who was charismatic and spoke all these wonderful things and and challenged people to a different way of living where they could smell and taste a new kingdom. Something new was on its way that was so different from the same old, same old, same old every single time of Rome and Pilate and Judea and Herod and rulers are rulers. They do what they do, but there was something different that they could taste. The beginnings of the kingdom of God. And so they looked to John and said, John, who are you? You're amazing. John, are you, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah come back from the dead? They thought the great prophet Elijah was going to come back one day and lead them. And some went further and said, no, John, you're not Elijah. John, I, are you our Messiah? Which you have to remember is an inherently political term. John, are you our political leader? Are you going to take us as a people? Are you going to overthrow the Romans? Are you going to lead us into a new, better way of being where we can finally be the Israel that God has called us to be? They were ready to lift and make John that person. And what does John say? In verse 16, John answered them all. Look, I, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come. The throngs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In this moment when the whole nation was ready to lift him up, and make him the next great thing. What does John do? It's not me. There's someone else coming. And he consistently points to Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. In fact, once Jesus got baptized and started his own ministry, Jesus' ministry naturally grew. I mean, that happens when you're the Son of God, right? And so Jesus' ministry was picking up, and some of, John, some of John's disciples began to feel a bit insecure. John, John, this guy Jesus, he's baptizing people in the, in the river like you are, and heaps of our people are going to him. John, don't you understand? Like, he's, he's our competition. What do we do? Again, John recognized that he was just calling forward to a better king that was always going to come. John was never going to be the king of this nation. He was never going to be the leader of this movement. His role was to always do one thing and one thing only, point people to that king. And so he says to his disciples, guys, it's fine. I must decrease that he might increase. And he points to Jesus. More of him, less of me. And this is the call that still sits with us today. 
in whatever area and scenario we find ourselves, in whatever place we are advocating for whatever policies, or sitting in the midst of unchanging or moving governments and not knowing our place, we are always still to keep pointing people back to Jesus. Because as Christians, yes, we participate in this democracy and we participate in this country, but our citizenship belongs somewhere else. We belong to a different sort of kingdom. And our king isn't like any other of these kings. He doesn't shove his way to the top to rule top down. Instead, he sacrifices himself and makes himself like the lowest servant. Our king doesn't force his way to power and make people do things for him. Instead, our king opens up and gives himself as an offering for us. He brings in a new kingdom that is good and glorious, where every tear will be wiped away, where everyone will be in right relationship with one another, where all things will be made new in him. And it is a grand hope that we can never let go of. As we look at whatever party is going to get involved, we hold on to the knowledge and the hope that the kingdom that we belong to will never fade away. Because the king who we follow is coming. And he is good, and he is loving, and he is just. He is the one we follow. He is the one that we, like John the Baptist, keep on saying, more of him. More of him and less of me. So what does this mean for us all here? Uh, Does that mean we abandon politics and just do our own thing here in the church? Of course not. For those who here are actively involved in leadership locally or nationally, keep doing what you are doing and do it as an ambassador of Jesus Christ in your place. And for those of us here who are not in any government, we're just trying to get through, we're trying to do our own thing, we have to remember that we are involved in something greater than ourselves. See, our democracy works this way. We go and we find a piece of paper and we tick some boxes so that we can get someone who will represent us down in Wellington and hopefully make some good decisions for us, right? The kingdom of God, it's different. Each and every one of us are ambassadors. We are ambassadors of a different kingdom. No one represents us, but we represent Christ to every area that we are involved in. And that brings a heavy mantle, but a great one. And if we could grab hold of the spirit of John the Baptist, could you... Could you imagine the creative potential for our world? Could you imagine the creative potential in New Zealand if you have this whole church that is raised up speaking truth to power, openly calling up in repentance, saying, God, forgive us, that is ready to look different and not act like the rest of the world, but live according to a self-sacrificial love that God has given to us. For those who don't even love us or accept us yet, for them we give everything. Can you imagine what it would do to this nation? That is our That is our hope because that is the kingdom to which we belong. So come what may in Wellington. The leaders will make their decisions and we will pray for them. We will seek their best and the best for our nation, but we will always keep pointing back to him because he is our king. He is our leader and he is coming and he is so good. So good. So good. And so my prayer is that we might pick up some of the same call that John the Baptist himself did.
that we would be the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the paths for him. Let every valley be filled and every mountain and hill made low. Let all the crooked roads become straight and all the rough ways smooth so that all of humanity, all of our nation, all of our communities might see and know God's salvation. Let's stand as we pray. Jesus, we stand here today in the midst of shifting sands. Lord, the leaders of our nations are working around trying to decide who's going to end up where, who's going to be in power where, and all these decisions will greatly affect us here in this place. They will affect the future of our nation, they will affect the future of our children, and it's easy for us to put our hope in that. God, it's easy for us to put our hope in these leaders saying they can fix it for us. But Lord, here today in your house with your people, we stop to remember that they are not our kings. You are. They are not our saviors. You are. They are not our role models. You are. And so God, help us to follow your call. Help us to live in your kingdom. God, help us to look different. When everything in the world around us wants to make us be like everybody else around us, help us to have the courage to take a step out and be different. To lift up a different voice, to voice up a different opinion, to go spend time with people who don't sit in the center but are left on the outside in the wilderness. God, let us go be found among them, proclaiming a kingdom that is so much different than the world has ever seen. Lord, help us to repent. God, it is so easy to point our fingers and say that it's everyone else's fault, but Lord, we are complicit. God, it's easy to look at the world and say, oh, they're immoral. Oh, they don't care about these people, but God, we sin. We are immoral. We don't love our neighbors. Forgive us. Let us not fall into the system where we have to try and pretend we're perfect. Lord, we open up our hands and say, God, we are flawed have mercy. God, give us the courage to speak truth even when that's difficult, even when that might put us at the at ends with public opinion, even when that might have people angry at us, furious with us, cutting off relationships. God, help us to have the courage to speak your truth in love. And Lord, help us to remember that we are always pointing everything back to you. Because you are our hope, our salvation, our future, our king, our leader, our brother, our friend, our supporter, our provider, our healer. It's you. It's always been you. So today we proclaim more of you, Jesus, in this nation. More of you in our communities. More of you in our homes and in our workplaces. More of you, Jesus. Make way the valleys. Make way for a coming king who is good and just and mighty. And for in him we will find our hope. Come, Lord Jesus.